This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. There's an undercurrent of suspicion about Seattle's negotiating approach, perhaps even at times outright hostility among some of the most well-versed Seahawks fans out there. And, Paul, I could understand if this was, say, a receiver drafted in the fourth round. That's that's tended to be a problem area for Seattle over the years. And, well, I think that's more coincidence. Or even, even if we were criticizing the drafting of offensive linemen, which I think is overblown and a cliche, but, okay, you want to go get your cheap licks in. The skepticism regarding the negotiating approach Seattle is taking for both Jamal Adams and Dwayne Brown flies entirely in the face of some pretty extensive history that the Seahawks know what they're doing when it comes to contract extensions specifically. The track record, given that they have not fallen off a cliff, I do think is in the Seahawks' favor. Does that track record guarantee that going forward, this will continue? Nope, it does not. And it doesn't account for these two situations in particular, which are are different. Jamal Adams' situation is different from Dwayne Brown's. The the similarity is that they are two of the five most important players on the Seahawks team who are visibly unhappy. We're not sure how unhappy, but they're not practicing right now. And there's an uncertainty about when or if either deal is going to get done, and then if they don't get done, what, what, what happens next? No, it doesn't guarantee success. But the thing that I keep coming back to is that there's this sense of, oh, God, Seattle doesn't know what they're doing. They're playing with fire. Dwayne mm. Brown is not playing games, is what Jay Keeps said to us yesterday. And, and what that doesn't recognize is that Seattle has a pretty strong track record of knowing how to navigate these things. And that's not even that they'll find a way out of it. But if they've made an offer that the other side isn't isn't accepting or they've made a decision that the other side is mad at, there's a there's a pretty good chance that Seattle's offer or decision is more in line with the right thing than whatever they're being asked for. Saying that they don't know what they're doing is an extreme overstatement. They clearly know what they want to do. Yes. They do not want to pay Jamal Adams more money than any defensive player in the NFL, which I'm guessing Jamal Adams is at the very least thinking about. And they're probably concerned about giving, as we discussed yesterday, a soon-to-be 36-year-old left tackle an extension as well when they're not 100% sure that he is going to make it through this season. And then you take a look in the past at some of the guys that they have given extensions to or have thought twice about giving extensions to. You could see why you'd feel pretty confident in their ability to make the right decision going forward. But I do think that these two situations, Danny, are very different from some of the situations in the past. Because we're talking about, again, a left tackle that you don't quite have a replacement for, and you're talking about the best player on your defense who is young in the prime of his career, and you would think, with time, could potentially even get better with a full season under his belt here in Seattle. What's the last contract? Extension or even free agent deal, what's the last one the Seahawks goofed? 
What's the last one? Was it Jadevian Clowney? Because I remember the very same no. logic. Hey, this is an extraordinary circumstance. You don't have another pass rusher. Okay, you're not going to pay him. Who are you going to do? Like, that's that's the last time. I remember all of these similar arguments being ponied up. They made the right call. I do wonder what Clowney would be had he signed the extension early, but that was something that was never going to happen. If he had a full season, and we'll see what he does in Cleveland this year with a full offseason finally as opposed to what he's been doing the last couple of years, not just in Tennessee, but also in Houston before he went to Seattle, where he's not actually showing up for practice. But, yep, they got that one right. Earl Thomas. Earl Thomas was a guy in 2018 who wanted an extension, who had even gone out and made made a, made a lot of noise in, in, in the previous season about, hey, let's get something done. He was clearly unhappy. Seattle was like, no, nah, we're not doing it. He was mad going into well, his final season. He gets hurt, and then he leaves as a free agent. Did they goof that one? I think you could argue that they got worse and that they had to basically pull up and trade their way out of the problem that they put themselves in with Earl Thomas. But Earl Thomas was not better in Baltimore than he was in Seattle. In fact, he was an absolute mess. Now, I will also make the argument, sort of like with Clowney, had they brought Earl Thomas back, that's not to say that Thomas would not have been the same player that he'd been. In fact, I think of any place in the NFL – Thomas being here, he would have been most likely to perhaps stay at a somewhat relatively competent level as opposed to turning into whatever disaster he has become now that he's gone to Baltimore. Yeah, he's not even in the league right now. Right. And that that part of it, you're right, but it could have been different. Two for it two. Also ver- it also very much could have been that you paid him all that money, then he went off the deep end, and you still need to replace him. Whatever like the case, two for two, yes. I'm, you I'm, still could have been. The last... Frank Clark is a guy that you can argue they should have extended. They sh- they should have extended him. Like you you can say that that they the year before, but they ended up franchise tagging him and trading him, getting pretty significant. I would say surprising return. Now what they did with those those picks is a, a different question entirely. But they ended up they ended up getting quite a bit of compensation for him. Would they have been better off keeping him? Maybe. Would they have been better off had they extended him the year before his big year? Maybe, but I don't look at that as some sort of testament of if that's the best case, if that's the best example you have of Seattle goofing on extensions that they've given out. I don't know if that's the sort of thing of, hey, they dramatically miscalculated in that because he is machine gun Clark at this point. And I don't know if anybody feels that his performance the last two years has measured up to being a $20 million a year pass rusher. Yeah, I, I would say of the three, that's the decision that I think makes the most sense, probably internally and externally, because there were some real questions just about Frank Clark and his ability to stay out of the kind of trouble that he now finds himself in. In fact, of all three of those moves, that's probably the one that in the moment, had I been here, I would have defended the most. Where with Clowney, I was in opposition to it, and I think I also would have been in opposition to them letting Earl Thomas walk. So how do we take that track record in which Seattle, and we haven't even gotten into all the extensions they have done, two with Russell Wilson, two with Bobby Wagner, Earl Thomas, two with Cam Chancellor, Richard Sherman, like guys who are the best, the best players at their respective positions, that they, they've shown the ability to get those deals done. And not only that, when they don't get the deals done, when they haven't reached it, it's kind of, in retrospect, you've looked back at it, and there's in the case of Earl Thomas and Jadavian Clowney, I certainly feel with like, thank God you didn't go money whip them into being back on your team. How do you reconcile that with sort of the uncertainty and anxiety that's going on currently with Jamal Adams and Dwayne Brown? Well, you're not letting any of these guys walk this season. 
correct? They are under contract currently. I guess this is really a question about what happens after this year. Jamal Adams is going to be here. You know, I, I feel like it's just a matter of are you going to make him the most high-paid safety slash linebacker? Are you going to do some sort of halfway in between what you've seen some of those linebackers like Darius Leonard and, and Fred Warner get and in between um, in Denver what Justin Simmons got? But that one is going to happen. Brown is the one where you could take a look at the track record and say they have known when to say, yep, you've done great for us, but we're going to go in a different direction. I just, my big concern is what's the avenue for the different direction? And I would say with Earl Thomas, they had to trade a fifth-round pick for Quandre Diggs, and they had to trade two first-round picks for Jamal Adams to make their safety situation fixed again. And it's one of the most important positions on this team. Might be the most important position for Pete Carroll's defense. That part's true, but he's not going anywhere, right? And is that a right. reason to give him? Is that is that is that reason to? to make him, to give him what he wants, to say, okay, we've got our way of looking at things, but we're so pot committed at this point. We've traded so much to get him. We're not going to mess around. We're going to blow our own our, our own salary structure, and we're going to stretch beyond what anything that we think is reasonable because we just don't want the drama. Is it the drama as much as, I mean, they, they, they sent so many resources. Are they really going to say, you know what, this isn't worth it, and then all of a sudden press the eject button? But they're not pressing the eject button because they're just saying, okay, if you don't want this contract, if you don't want this, then you can play out you. the okay. final year of your of your contract, and then we can go into the franchise tag. It's not – when you're trading for a guy, like you actually have to cross that threshold, right? Like you actually have to – if the other team says, no, we're not doing it without two firsts, you have to decide. In a contract negotiation like this where he's got a year left on his deal, it's not quite like that. You can say, hey, we're, we're good with our offer – you can you have options now. You can take it or you can walk down the other path, which has lots of different permutations, and we still have leverage in some of those instances. It's probably gonna gonna sour the relationship. Are you so are you so determined to avoid any conflict with him that you just bend to whatever he wants? Probably not, because you mentioned that team control that you have. I don't think that would be the best thing to walk down the path of. I think you just have to have faith that he would still respect you as an organization if you were to make that move. And even though I think a lot of things in New York were overblown, I could understand how things could potentially go back down that road again if this gets a little messier and less progress is made in the coming weeks. We'll see how it goes. I think Dwayne Brown is the tougher situation. I also think that's the one where Seattle's track record shows, if anything, they err on the side of of, of giving veterans – extensions that come back to bite him in the butt. So if they're saying no go on this one, and I don't know that that's the case. I don't know that they've said there's there's no extension forthcoming. But if that's the case, I'm inclined to think that Seattle's evaluation of it is a little bit more correct. We'll keep talking about some of this. There's a lot to get to today. We've got a great show that's going to include Ray Roberts, Shannon Dreyer both joining with us, Brock Heward fresh back from Canton will be with us in about 50 minutes from now. But right now it's front page news. This, this is the front page. Today's top two stories and why they matter. Every morning at 710, get what you need to know to start your day right now. All right, Paul. I saw some baseball playoffs odds yesterday. It was disappointing on one hand, reaffirming on the other. First, the disappointment. 
This is baseball reference. They listed the Mariners' playoff chances at 1.2%. Uh, so you're saying there is a chance. There, there's there, a chance, it, man. It's essentially a seven-team race for six playoff spots. The seventh team, and that is the Yankees, who have a 22.1% chance. 22.1%. Then it's the Mariners who have a 1.2%, and Cleveland, which has is, is next, is 0.9%. So it's essentially a cliff after the Yankees. It's a sheer cliff that drops off. That's a bummer. How different would things be potentially if they had taken three out of four against New York this weekend or been able to take four? Oh, that's just, this is bothersome no, no. to me. Uh, see, because I looked at it the exact opposite way. I was like, okay, so say they took three of four. Do you think their odds are 5% now? 6%? How much do you think that really would have changed it? Because I don't think it does that much. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think we're looking at a situation of, hey, if that week had gone different and if they don't blow those two games against Texas and they win three of four against the Yankees, that this, they would have had the 22%. I think they would have maybe had a 5 or 6% chance. I, I think you were looking at a lottery ticket regardless oh, of them making the playoffs. I felt the same way. You know, and we had a lot of people over the last couple of days post the Kendall Graveman trade who have been saying, well, that's why you play the games. It's not about percentages. Eh. At a certain point, it is about percentages. At a certain point, it is about knowing what you hand, knowing when to fold them, knowing when to walk away, knowing when to run. And yeah, the Mariners are kind of walking away. I would say at the trade deadline with not going psychopathically all in at the trade deadline. But I mean, this is a pretty accurate reflection of where they stand in the American League right now. They got dudes that would help next year, which is absolutely what they should do compared to hired guns for this season that was a long shot. The front page. Well, one of those younger guys, Mariners pitcher Emerson Hancock, is closer to the major leagues. He gets the call up from the Everett Aquasox and joins the Arkansas Travelers in double-A, a 33-hour bus ride. I don't think that they were going to make him do that. You can actually fly out of Everett, connect in Denver, and get to Little Rock, Arkansas, where the Arkansas Travelers play in about 10 hours. Five-hour layover. Emerson Hancock sounds like an aristocrat, right? Like, it sounds Emerson like... Emerson Hancock. Right. Like, sounds like somebody that should be pitching in an ascot. I, I kind of like it. I, I kind of like the... Like the the upper crust. I'm trying to come up with a good nickname for someone called Emerson Hancock. How would you like your balls doctored, sir? Yeah, high and tight. <laughs> Where is my rosin, sir? And I'll say this: if George Kirby and/or Emerson Hancock end up being studs for the Mariners, feel free to remind me how willing I was to include them in any package that might have helped. Because I was, nah. I was, I was not so, I was not so sold on. I, I believe there's no such thing as a pitching prospect, so I'm going to have fingers crossed. But man, I've started to, I've started to think about what it would mean for this franchise if Hancock and/or Kirby becomes the stud that they kind of look like. In the minor leagues so far. Yeah, one or the other. Maybe that's the hope. One or the other. If they both are fantastic, I'm still someone that looks at prospects and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Which is probably a terrible strategy and is why I should never be a baseball general manager. That is front page news. Let's get to the professor. It's time for John Clayton to join us in the morning drive. 
John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle, and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything NFL, NFL from the professor John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. Professor, we began this morning's show talking about past contract negotiations for the Seahawks, guys that they have extended, like Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner, Earl Thomas, Richard Sherman, Camp Chancellor, Cliff Averill, K.J. Wright, and guys they've let walk away, Golden Tate, Frank Clark, and obviously eventually Earl Thomas. What can the past negotiations of this organization, of John Schneider and company, tell us about what they're going to do with both Jamal Adams and with Dwayne Brown. Well, I mean, you, you figure that the, the key right now is to get something done with Jamal Adams because, I mean, he's the biggest ticket on the items. I mean, he's the one that's going to cost the most. It's going to cost more than $16 million to be able to get him done. And, of course, I mean, he's young. And, of course, I mean, you notice you bring up the names, and, you know, the names are pretty much more of the guys, you know, going into their second contract. And, you know, certainly Jamal's now in, going into his second contract. And so you want to get him done first. First, and then you see where it stands as far as Dwayne Brown. Now, you know, again, the one thing with Dwayne Brown is that I still look at it kind of like an Andrew Whitworth situation where it's like, yeah, you can give him the, uh, the extension, and I think they should, but it's not going to be for much more money. I mean, for a base salary, it's going to be one that's going to cost, uh, you know, maybe $10 million, $10.5 million, and that'll be about it. Because, you know, at 36, it's not like you're going to get a big raise. That's just not the deal in this year's NFL. So, uh, but again, the key right now is getting something done, and I'd say this week with Jamal Adams. Is there a chance that Seattle ends up putting a deadline on the offer? Because that's tended to be what they do in free agency. It's a little harder when you're talking about an extension where they say, okay, if we're going to do it, you have to take it by this date. Uh, I mean, they did it with Earl Thomas. I remember back uh, in the spring when Earl was asking for, you know, he wanted the most defensive money in the league Mm -hmm. and they basically uh, got fed up and they said okay fine if you don't get this deal done by this weekend then uh, you're playing out the last year of the contract and he was able to get the deal done I don't know if they want to be that way with Jamal but uh, probably not but in the end I think that uh, what you're looking at is he's you know you know it's it's, again something should get done but again right now nothing's done yeah, same thing kind of happened with Marshawn too. Yeah, and that was after the 2011 season. He was he was going to he was, that was the last year of his deal, and they yeah. basically said we're going to franchise tag you if you don't accept this. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where his agent was like, "Yeah, that's that's a fair deal. It's up to Marshawn whether or not he's going to accept it or not." And kind of at the 11th hour, Marshawn he wasn't happy about it, but he ended up, he ended up taking it. I that's kind of the only recourse the team has when. That gets to the point of, okay, we're not going to increase our offer anymore, and we need to come to a resolution about whether or not you're going to take it, is they have to say, the, the offer is going to come off the table, and you're just going to play the last year of the deal if you don't accept it by this date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, but of course, I mean, you still want to keep players happy, and of course, yeah. you know, again, this is also business, too, and business sometimes can leave you unhappy, and that's just the reality of being in the National Football League. But again, I still think it's Jamal first, Dwayne Brown second. Speaking of unhappy, Michael Thomas and the Saints continues to be extremely interesting. We found out a couple of days ago that Michael Thomas had been ignoring calls from Saint coaches and trainers for three months about his ankle, which he only recently had surgery on. Then you saw yesterday, Michael Thomas over the weekend had tweeted out, excuse me, put on his Instagram story 
they try to damage your reputation. You saved theirs by not telling your side of the story, to which Sean Payton responded yesterday saying, I don't want to have a press conference based on social media. John, it would be really hard for New Orleans to trade Thomas because they'd have to eat about $33 million in dead money or something like that over the next two years. But how does this situation play out? Because it does feel like both of these sides hate each other right yeah, now. Yeah, right now I would agree. And, of course, I mean, it's going to play out very tough because, first off, you're not going to be able to get value for him when he's still coming off ankle surgery. And so that means if there's going to be a trade, it's going to be a trade in the middle of the season. And are you going to get value and can you fit it under the cap? I mean, you're looking at a Saints team right now that uh, has 11 starters who are going to be different at the beginning of the regular season. 11, and that includes a replacement temporarily for Michael Thomas. So, uh, you know, it's like he's under contract. He got a big deal, all those different things. He's basically the only wide receiver that's any good for them. And so it's like, uh, yeah, this is going to be a tough year for the New Orleans Saints, Sean Payton, and Michael Thomas did not make it easier. And again, you have to kind of wonder, it's like, hey, so what are you hiding that's going to make you look good when you basically wait until June to have your surgery? My theory on this, John, is that he feels it was misdiagnosed last year. That he got hurt in week one, and then it kind of lingered throughout Mm -hmm. the season, and he got advice from the doctors, from the team doctors, about holding off on having surgery. And then when he gets through the end of the year, and okay, now you have to have surgery, he decided, I got hurt on company time. They wouldn't let me have surgery on company time, so I'm going to wait until I have surgery, and and I'm going to recover on company time. And... I guess I understand that from the player. It's kind of what Shaq used to say. Like Shaq used to wait to have surgery until the NBA regular season was going to start. The the difference between that is that in in basketball, the regular season doesn't matter as much as it certainly does in the NFL. If you miss the first 30 games of the basketball season and you're a star, that doesn't make nearly the kind of difference that missing – even four or five games as a football player does as one of the best players on your team. And I, I, I I think, I think he was acting out of resentment over what happened a year ago. Well, and that that probably will eventually lead to a trade. I mean, look at Trent Williams was upset because he didn't uh, do his, they didn't realize he had cancer in his face and, uh, you know, he he held out and not held out, but he just waited. And he wouldn't play or anything of that nature. And then finally, they ended up trading him to San Francisco. I mean, that could be the same situation. But again, in the case of Michael Thomas, if we're not talking cancer. We're talking ankle. And again, to wait until June to uh, get a surgery. To me, that's completely selfish. It goes against the team, the teammates, the coach, you name it. Yep. Professor, we always appreciate your time. We'll look forward to catching up with you tomorrow. Okay, sounds good. That is John Clayton. You can follow his reports, 710sports.com. Also hear him this afternoon with Wyman and Bob. Russell Wilson has more freedom? Question mark. Yeah, he actually might, and that might be important for what could be a make-or-break year. Is it that way for him or for his relationship with the team? We'll talk about that next. You're listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. We heard some interesting comments from Russell Wilson after Sunday's mock game. And, Danny, it had to do with some freedom that he might have now, at least compared to last year. Like William Wallace-style freedom? Freedom! Yes, that kind of freedom. The kind of freedom that you win at the Battle of Bannockburn. 
Wilson, when asked about the difference between the Schottenheimer offense and Waldron offense and what he could do at the line of scrimmage, had this to say. I think that we, we've I've always been able to change the play for the most part, you know, along my my career. I think you know Shadi allowed me to call the plays and stuff like that, the line of scrimmage when we needed to. I think the emphasis of being able to do it all the time, you know, all throughout the game, you know, is the key. I think that's a little bit different, you know, in that sense. But you know, I, I think that I have freedom, obviously, you know, for sure. Uh, I think the fun part is we have just so, so much that we can do and so many reasonings and so so many whys to it. Uh, I think this is what's really been really exceptional. When I hear all the time, it does make me think that Russ might have unlimited power. And to be a little more specific, before the game, Tyler Lockett had been asked about some of the differences with the new offense. And as opposed to maybe being 15 plays or so that they could change into, they have now 40 to 50. So it does seem like they have a little bit more to work with. And I am curious as to what this entails as far as the kind of control that Russ has at the line of scrimmage. Or maybe if this is closer to something that was taking place in Los Angeles where Sean McVay and Jared Goff clearly had a very close relationship via the headset where McVay was able to help out Goff until the very last seconds of the play clock, usually before 25 or so, before they eventually would line up, snap the ball, etc. When does the headset cut off? Does it cut off at 15? I think does it's it cut 15. Off at 20? Yes. Because that was one of the things you felt with the Rams, that they went fast because because McVeigh wanted to be able to talk to Goff right up until he snapped it, right? And there was a little bit that I felt that that might have been because he thought his quarterback was a dum dum, and that he he wanted he wanted the last thing that Goff he wanted Goff making all decisions when McVeigh could still talk to him. That's not the case with Russ, right? Like nobody right. thinks that about Russ. We're not sure if he's Peyton Manning, Tom Brady level at the line of scrimmage, but he's definitely really good. And Russ even said that he and Shane Waldron seem to be on a much different page than the page you just described with McVeigh and with Goff. Here is Russ again. You know, the, the, the extension of, of me and Shane, is, you know, really, as you guys probably saw some today early on, is just the ability for him to call something and then me to be at the line of scrimmage and go to something else if it's not the right look and this and that and just be able to play super fast in that way and get us to the best play and best situation. And there are several examples in, the, in today. Um, you know, and so I just think that that's, that's a really good thing. And we're, we have, we're on the same wavelength on that sense. Sounds great. I agree. I've, I've always thought that Seattle's offense hums best when they're playing fast and Russ might have the most control at the line of scrimmage. I've always felt that way. And I, I've understood why you can't always run what is their two-minute or their four-minute offense throughout a game. But the number of times that I've seen that offense stink, stink out loud for a quarter and a half, and they're down 14-3, to 14-6, and they really haven't got anything going, all of a sudden, last possession of the first half, they match the total offensive output they've had on their first four drives with one touchdown drive right before halftime yeah. it changes you're like what why couldn't why couldn't you do that sooner so i'm all in favor of russ having a larger say in what they run and how fast they run and one of the things that we saw in the mock game was that when they were moving the chains that's when they generally seem to pick things up now i don't know if that continues into the preseason games we'll see on saturday of course in vegas against the raiders if that's something that is continuing from the mock game into that i would imagine it would so it kind of brings us to this point now where, okay, Russell Wilson definitely has a little bit more freedom, at least in his own mind, this coming season. And, Danny, you had asked the question in our show prep email, is this a make-or-break year for Russell Wilson? And I, I started thinking to myself, 
maybe it's one of two different options. Is it more of a make-or-break year for the Seahawks with Russ? Because they clearly are giving him a little bit more freedom and maybe a little bit more faith this season, at least based off of those comments that you just heard from Russ. Or is it more of a make-or-break year for Russell Wilson at age 33 as a mobile quarterback that is getting older and older? It will be 33 in November this year. Older and older in a league where mobile quarterbacks don't tend to last very long. He has been the exception to that rule thus far in his career. I think this is a question of how Russ feels about the team going forward. And I think that's what's at a make-or-break point this year. I think how this season turns out, not even how much how they get there, but how this season turns out is going to determine and go a long way to determining whether or not we have uh, not just what happened last offseason, but something that goes a step beyond that. Like they kind of sidled up to the edge of the cliff last year, right? Like Russ kind of sidled up and pushed it like he was unhappy. He was frustrated. He expressed that publicly, which had not happened before. And then the dialogue that happened, it went from there to his agent providing four teams he'd be willing to accept a trade to because of the tension that was brewing behind the scenes. If they have a similar result, or even if they win a wild card round playoff game and get torched on the road in the divisional round of the playoffs, which has been, that's been the best case scenario over the past six seasons. Yeah, I think there's I I think it is a make or break year for Russ with the team. I'm not I'm not convinced it's a make or break year for Russ as an elite quarterback. I I do think that this is a make or break year for Russ and the franchise. I look at it from this perspective though. He has not had a good second half of the season in his last two seasons. And is that going to happen? Is he going to be able to do what he did in 2015 at the end of the year? Is the amount of hits that he takes and just the way that he plays over a 17-game slate less sustainable now. You know, we, we've asked that question about some of the older quarterbacks in the league. I know we do it with Drew Brees every year. We assume Brees is not going to be good down the stretch. I thought the same thing would be the case with Phillip Rivers last year. We saw it with Ben Roethlisberger down the stretch. Now, obviously, those guys are older than Russell yeah, Wilson. Yeah, like five or six years older, right? Right. But does Russ have a little bit more wear and tear than the average 33-year-old quarterback given the amount of times that he's gotten hit? It's not to say that he's necessarily older or anything like that, but I do think that we have seen a little bit of a sign of slowing down. I haven't. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, literally, with, he's not as fast down. as he was. Right. With Breeze, though, you could see it, right? You could see it in his yes. arm and the way he threw the ball. Like you could see that with Peyton Manning. I'm, I'm trying to think, other than that, I don't think Russ is as fast as he was. And to be honest, I haven't thought. I've thought that that the 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 top end speed. That I could see, he, he's not been able to run away from defensive linemen, let alone linebackers, in in five years. I've felt I haven't seen any signs of physical, like physical limitation. I haven't ever felt that, like, oh, he just can't make that throw anymore. I haven't either. So then maybe that lends itself to okay, the offense that's upstairs is that actually helping Russell Wilson? And I think you could make a very strong case that last year Brian Schottenheimer was the biggest detriment to the Seahawks down the stretch. So things might be different. What if there's a similar result this year, Danny, and Russ still realizes that he is getting the kind of thing that he always wanted, which is what he is describing right now? Do you think that he's going to look at himself in the mirror and say, oh, well, it's going to work somewhere else differently? Or do you think that he might think to himself, you know what? It took Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers a year to mesh, to gel. I'm going to give this another shot. I hope it's the latter. I really do. He should be honest with himself if it does perhaps end the same way 
and think to himself, you know what, this might just not be something that can be fixed in one year. Maybe it takes multiple. Can we find a different example? Because I don't think Rodgers and LaFleur are the best example for finding peaceful, copacetic, get along, long time. Because I know that Rodgers is mostly mad at the GM, but that didn't seem to be that sustainable. It didn't, but then last year happened. And I imagine. And then Rogers... he asked for a trade or was unhappy or whatever happened this offseason. Like, I, Aaron Rodgers is not the model that we're hoping to replicate here. Yeah, I guess. It's hard, it's hard to get these guys to be realistic, to be rational here. But is yep. Rodgers going to do something better in another situation? Would Rodgers be what he was last year anywhere? And I think a lot of people would argue yes, but I don't necessarily know that. I, I mean, it feels like he actually finally found, found a guy that is pretty good at putting things together. And, you know, we always talk about how Aaron Rodgers has no help around him. Well, if Aaron Rodgers has no help around him, I mean, LaFleur's doing a pretty good job up there. If you're going to try to convince a quarterback who feels he hasn't been properly supported and given the proper accoutrements to succeed, that he should be happy because it's not going to be better somewhere else, good luck. Good luck. I know, but it, it, it should be the case. It really should be. You're right. Danny Gallant, 710 ESPN Seattle. He is Danny O'Deal. I am Paul Gallant. Up next, look, the Mariners have been pretty entertaining this season, but the playoffs are a long shot, right? We'll give you the details next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. We'll get a little bit back to football. Our training camp coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. We're going to have Brock here join us, Blue 42. We'll talk to him, get his take on the sort of simmering tension that we have regarding contracts. The Mariners return home. They have a big home stand. Starts tonight against the Texas Rangers. It's certainly important for their standing. Their playoff odds are a long shot at this point. It doesn't mean that they're, it's a formality or anything else like that, but the, the likelihood of them making the playoffs is, is, is pretty small. Give me the number. According to baseball reference, it's 1.2%. Now, that's not straight. It's it, it includes projections of how the teams are playing. It takes into account the Mariners' run differential, like all of those different things. It's an attempt to handicap ah. the difficulty of schedule, the quality of the teams, and, and how they, they've actually played. That's where run dire- differential really kicks them in the butt then. Because that, that was surprising when I saw that in our email last night. 1.2%. I mean, that is... That is dramatically low considering we've got nearly two months of baseball left. Right. And they're five and a half games out, right? They're five and a half games yeah. out of the second wild card spot right now. I mean, they've but done you crazier have... things in 95 at the very least. Exactly. The difference is 95 was one team you had to catch. Here you've got, you've got a mess. You're going to have to pass three teams, mm. essentially. You're going to have to pass two teams for sure. But you're, you, you, I think you're probably going to have to finish second in your division, and 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 it's going to be tough. It, it, it's going to be hard. None of this should dim the feeling about what has happened this season, and and I think it's important to sort of state that very clearly now. If they don't make the playoffs, I'm going to be bummed, but I'm not going to be disappointed in this season. I'm going to be bummed because I think in a lot of years, the way the Mariners have played would be good enough to be. If they're in the National League, this is a much different conversation about where they. If it's a year ago, if it's a year ago, remember when there was extra playoff spots? Like it would have, it would have changed things. 
this should not be a disappointment. If anything, everyone should look at this season as a huge sign of encouragement for the immediate future of the Seattle Mariners. They've done more. This was a team a lot of people... Ryan Divish thought they were going to lose in the mid-90s. Like, that, that's how many games he thought. And he is someone who I would consider a very rational baseball analyst. Someone who is not... He, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't either have overt favoritism, nor does he have some sort of underlying skepticism and, and dislike. I think he's a pretty rational... Looking at this Mariners team has played a lot better, been a lot tougher, gotten a lot more out of this year. And and my fear is that people are going to look at the trade deadline and what happened and what followed and think to themselves, the Mariners foiled their own chance at the playoffs, which is not that's not what has happened. And that should not be the storyline for this season. They've got about 59 plus 54, doing a little radio math here. I, if I'm not mistaken, about 49 games left in the year. And I, I thought they would be a 74-win team. So, I mean, they can they could easily do that even with a, a complete meltdown down the stretch. I, I, I'm with you in that they've overachieved this year. I think we all knew deep down that they were overachieving because they just don't score a lot of runs. And they were reliant on a bullpen that starred Kendall Graveman, a first-time reliever who's got neck issues that was pitching out of his mind this year, which was awesome to see, and clearly they all feel very good about him in the clubhouse, and I'm sure they miss him, and honestly, I miss seeing him out there too, especially with some of the struggles of late. 100% agreed. 100% agreed. And and I I can see the, the, the argument of timing and all of those things. That's a hard decision. Yeah, that that it's a hard decision, right? And I can if if you sit there and, and and told me, hey, this team and the fact that they've now gone four and eight after that trade, that's not a coincidence. That is, they sucked the mojo out of this team, and it was a gut punch to them. I'd say, you know what? That might that might be true. Like that might be true. I still don't think you make the playoffs if you have Kendall Graveman. I don't. I don't, I don't think if you keep Kendall Graveman that we're looking at, hey, this team's got a, even a 20% chance, chance at making the playoffs right now. I don't believe that. The, the other part of it is, okay, what did you just say the biggest problem is? Runs. Yep. What, what did they get for Kendall Graveman? They got the guy who has been one of the most consistent sources of offense in that, and you have him for a number of years. It, in the big picture... In the big picture, you can make a very compelling argument that Abraham Toro will be a much more significant component for you. That if I tell you you've got a reliever that you're going to keep for a little more than a third of the season and then probably let him walk in free agency because you're probably not going to pay to keep a reliever that's that good. Or you can have a a promising infielder that you like a lot that you're going to have for the next five years. Which do you take? It's a no-brainer, right? Infielder, yeah, not even close. He fits a spot. He's been blocked there. That was it. It was an alignment of all of those things. So I'm I'm afraid that people are going to come away with the wrong conclusion about this season. And this goes to kind of the the bigger picture view. I can't imagine not bringing back Service and Depoto. And I don't know how they're going to announce it. I don't know how they're going to going to orchestrate all of that. But that that really can't be a question at this point. What more do they need to see? I'm trying to think about it from their perspective, the Mariners front office. Is there a thought that they will completely melt down down the stretch? Do they feel 
misled as far as how close they were. Because honestly, I feel like if anything, this year has shown that they are definitely on the right track. Why would you want to get off now? What would you be getting off now for? I mean, unless you're getting somebody that's truly a transcendent franchise changer, like, let's say, Theo Epstein, because you're not finding that with a manager, then what is it that you think that you actually might have as an alternative to this duo? I don't think there is one. I don't either. And I don't think the lack of an announcement means that the Mariners are uncertain about that. That's that's honestly think it because we always assume that as soon as a deal gets done it gets announced. Like we always we right. always assume that. That's not necessarily the case. Legalities bigger picture. Delay things well, it's not only that, it's it's how do you roll it out? Like what what are the different sort of steps that you take? So I don't I'm not reading the lack of an announcement or the lack of a public decision as having as 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 betraying or showing that they're somehow undecided on this. And there's a lot that could be going on. Look, it takes two sides to reach an agreement. So it, it's more than just the Mariners deciding we want to but I, I would say after this year, I am more convinced than ever. This season has done nothing but encourage me that those are the two right people. And in fact, if you ask me which one's most important, my answer's probably both. My answer is probably both because I think that service has handled the challenge exquisitely. I think he's been fantastic at at building a camaraderie in that clubhouse and keeping it together. And I think that Jerry DePoto has done a great job of making big picture evaluations of where this team is headed. I think the answer is both. I think it's DePoto. I, I think I, I have, I guess, very small questions about some of the decisions that service has made in games, but... I don't think they're like massive ones. Like some people make them out to be the night after a game that does not go their way. But it is interesting to see the reaction that we get. This is a 59 and 54 baseball team who expected that this year. Just sit back for a second. Did you expect that? Be ra- and I'm assuming you're a rational fan. I'm assuming you're smart. You're intelligent. You didn't think that they were going to be this. I didn't think they were going to be this. Danny didn't think they were going to be this. You know, we, we thought maybe around a 500 baseball team. They're five games above 500 after playing a pretty bad stretch over the last couple of games against both Texas and against New York. It's Danny and Gallant. We got Brock Heward. He's going to join us. We'll talk contract extension tension. That's next.